In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Thank you so much, Jean. Jean is herself a very gifted Bible teacher, so I thought she could read the Bible to you this morning, and that would really help. Have you ever been presented with an impossible task whereby you know you won't do justice to the task that's been given you? Um, for example, like if you were to say to me, how does the prelude to Bach's cello suite in G major go? Well, perhaps I could hum that to you, and I'd do something like this. And you're all thinking, Mike's a really good hummer. And um, that does sound like a particularly famous and uh, world-class piece of music. But really to experience it, you need to immerse yourself in the music and let it wash over you. Something a bit more perhaps like this. <clears throat> I sounded just like that a moment ago, didn't I? Um, another impossible task would be if you were to say, Mike, ex describe Becca in 30 seconds. Becca's my wife, and uh, it's an impossible task. I mean, I could talk to you a bit about her creativity, her compassion, the fact that she's much more intelligent than I am, all these things, but I could not tell you even a fraction of what she's like in just that amount of time. Or being asked to describe the flight of an eagle. They kind of flap their wings and... Um, they kind of rise up on some wind currents, but look, I'm not doing a very good job of looking like or describing an eagle particularly well. You'd have to take it in. The Gospel of John has been compared to an eagle, actually. Uh, in part, that's because of the soaring heights achieved in the first 18 verses. And today, I have the impossible task of unpacking the prologue to John's Gospel in a single sermon. 
Uh, and the thing is, I gave the task to myself, so there's no one else to blame. Um, but actually, I believe God's going to speak to us, because this is just wonderful that we're going to look at together. So let's be expectant of that. It is just read out a passage that's so beautiful and so full of world-changing truth. It is rich with echoes from the Hebrew Scripture. Now, John has been immersed in what we now call the Old Testament. And that's coming out again and again. His whole gospel is designed to show how Jesus is the Christ, the promised one. He's the fulfillment of the Scriptures. So there is layer upon layer of allusion to the Hebrew text. And here in the introduction, John sets off certain themes and images which will develop throughout the rest of the gospel. And they'll cycle over and over and over. And we'll identify some of those this afternoon. No word is wasted. It's masterfully done. Some suggest that the text may have been an ancient Christian hymn originally. Tom Wright compares the Gospel of John to a spectacular mansion with many glorious rooms to discover. And he says, like many spectacular mansions, there is often a long driveway, beautiful driveway leading up to it. And this introduction serves like that. It's a spectacular driveway leading up to what you're going to enter into. Last week, Richard, quite expertly, introduced us to the structure and the purpose of the gospel. We learned that John and his community, the community around him, have carefully selected certain material about specific words and actions of Jesus, and that these accounts have been organized in a very deliberate way with quite explicit motives. Now, John is wanting you and I to enter into the story of Jesus and to be convinced of who he is, that he is the Jewish Messiah, he is the Son of God, he is the Savior of the world, and you're part of that world. It's your Savior. This is a story that you can enter into again and again, finding deeper layers of meaning each read. But every time you'll be confronted with a question, and the question is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say he is? And, you know, you may have certain views about church, about how to live, about community and morality and social responsibility, but who do you say Jesus is? That is the most fundamental question and the question that John is wanting us to engage with in this book. And John is inviting us in his gospel, therefore, to come and see, come and see who Jesus is. And starting here in the introductory 18 verses... John makes at least four claims about who Jesus is, and we're going to look at those together. And that is that Jesus is word, he is light, he is glory, and he is grace. And if you like alliteration, the Greek word for word is, is logos. So he is logos, light, glory, grace. Okay, maybe that helps you to remember. First of all, he is word. It says, in the beginning was the word. And in those opening words to his gospel, John is quite deliberately repeating the opening words of the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning, God. John 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. John is wanting to grab our attention straight away. He's wanting to say, what, what I'm about to set out to you is the very fulcrum of history. As significant as the creation of all things at the beginning. What he's saying is, 
All of Scripture has been building up to this moment from the very first words until now. And John is activating the creation account precisely because the one through whom everything was made is now doing a new thing, which John's going to tell us about. New creation has begun. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This creative word, though, that John is going to introduce us to is not himself new. No, he was eternally with God before anything came to being. Indeed, he is himself God. So John says he is eternally with God and eternally one with God. But now he has come. You know, the idea of God's powerful word producing creation is not a new theme, actually. It wasn't a new thing for the Jewish people. It's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. In Psalm 33, verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. And Isaiah says in chapter 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. God's word proceeds from him in creative, life-giving power. Out of nothing, he made everything. He speaks everything into being. Now, even in our experience, we know that words can be powerful. Just yesterday, I was at a wedding. And at that wedding, there were some powerful words of promise exchanged, after which there was a proclamation. I now declare that you are husband and wife. And those words created a new family. But actually, sometimes my words do seem to return to me empty. It seems that they are less than powerful. So my, my wife, Becca, her brother's got a dog, and sometimes that dog comes to stay. And I'll say to the dog, sit, and it runs away. And I'll say, give me your paw, and you just kind of snort at me. You know, those words, the words seem not to have the effect that I would like them to. Or, or sometimes watching, watching football with friends, if there's a penalty shootout, oftentimes we'll predict if the person stepping up is going to score or not. And invariably, I get it wrong. So I say, yeah, score, and they miss. Or they're going to definitely miss, and then they score. You know, sometimes my words feel less than powerful, but the word of the Lord is always power. But, but not only power. It's really important. The word of the Lord is personal, not a principle or a force. That's not what John's describing here. No, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. It was the person of Christ who proceeded from the very heart of the Father in the beginning, empowered by the Spirit, to create everything. Genesis chapter 1 begins with these words. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. John identifies that creative word that spoke light into being with the very subject of his gospel. Jesus of Nazareth. He, this flesh and blood man, is the word who we've sung about at the beginning, spoke everything into being. It's, 
That's mind-blowing. You could rub shoulders with God in the marketplace. Let there be light, and there was light at the word of God. Robert Farrar Capon is a 20th century Anglican minister, and he he suggests that God created light first in the beginning to complement the uncreated light of the Son of God. Just as all material life is dependent upon the light of our sun, the star in the sky, so all the life of mankind is dependent upon the uncreated light of the Son of God. He's the source, he's the fountain, he's the origin of life. So just as sunflowers turn towards the sun to drinking all the life that flows from that light, so human beings are to turn to the Son of God and to drinking all the life that freely flows from him to us. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. He is the word bringing life and light. And you know, throughout the gospel, this theme of Christ bringing light and life by his word will cycle again and again. Look out for it. Look out for it over these coming weeks and months. It's fun. It's interesting. He will, he will speak as no one else speaks. We will see Jesus' word creating food where there is no food, health where there is no health, hope where there is no hope, faith where there is no faith, life where there is no life, forgiveness where there's only sin, truth where there's only falsehood, light where there is only darkness. John says that Jesus is the eternal created word. Who do you say he is? But John also says that Jesus is light. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now in some ways this is a bit of a strange phrase. You see, We know that when you switch on light, there's no question of darkness putting up a good fight. When my daughters are scared of the dark, and I go in and switch the light on, no one's wondering who's going to win this one, the light or the darkness. You switch the light on, and the darkness has to be overwhelmed and overcome by the light, even with our electrics, which is sometimes a bit funny. One of my favorite films is The Lord of the Rings, and um, there's a part in the Lord of the Rings, when um, Frodo has been on his journey a long time to get this ring into Mount Doom and the fires of Mount Doom in Mordor, and and he finds himself there in a cave close by to Mount Doom, and it's dark, and there's a spider out to get him, and it's very frightening, and he doesn't know what to do, and then he remembers that he was given the light of Erendil by some elves earlier on in the journey, and he just picks up this light and the spider shrieks back, shrinks back because he cannot stand the light. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. When light goes on, the darkness must be overwhelmed and leave. Light triumphs. And Christ is the irresistible light, the uncreated light. But John is picking up on another theme that will run throughout the following chapters of the gospel. Which is, as we will see, there will be conflict. There will be those who want to extinguish the light that Jesus brings, preferring the darkness. You see, light does bring life and beauty. And without it, there would be no flowers, no color, no food. But also light exposes, doesn't it? Sometimes, sometimes I have to get up 
particularly early to go to work in the morning, and so I'll be up before the rest of the family and you know, brushing my teeth and all that stuff, and I'll get into work and take off my jacket and step into the light and look down and big splodge of toothpaste. Okay, anyone else have that experience? Yeah, and the thing is, you can't ever get it out, can you? It's like, whatever you do, it's still there. And um, for as long as I was in the darkness, I didn't know anything about it, but stepping into the light and receiving all that goodness of light, which means I can see what I'm doing, it becomes obvious. Do the light of Jesus shines into the darkness of our world to illuminate everyone. In verse 9, it says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The light is for everyone, to bring life to everyone. No one is excluded from that promise. But that very illumination will at the same time expose corruption and challenge darkness, and some will want to pull away. John explains that though the world was made by Jesus, the creative eternal word, still the world did not know him. And even those who represented his own people, the Jewish leaders, even they rejected him. Like the homes of Bethlehem in the nativity accounts, they had no room for him. Darkness in conflict with light. And no one is immune from this, from this darkness. Whether religious or irreligious, that's the point. Gary Burge, who's a um, Presbyterian minister and a uh, scholar, and he says that, Sin is not a series of bad choices, but a state of being from which bad choices continually come. And no one is exempt from this dilemma. To the arrival of the light of Jesus into a land of darkness is nothing less than an invasion of occupied territory. The light is coming in in order to bring life and to rescue the captives, and the darkness will not like it. There will be conflict. Through the rest of the gospel, light and darkness will be a recurring theme. Again, look out for it. Look out for it as we read. Interactions that happen at night are associated with unbelief. Like Jesus' talk with Nicodemus or Judas leaving the supper to betray Jesus into the dark. On the other hand, light and sight are associated with faith and life throughout the gospel. Like the healing of the man born blind and how that man then speaks to power about the truth of who Jesus is. Or later, the resurrection of Lazarus in the brightness of the day. The triumph of the light over darkness. Look out for those themes. Look out for them. They're trying to tell us something. But, but, but actually, the theme of light and darkness is not just about mere literary interest. You know, for us academics, whoever we are. No, we are implicated too. The light of Jesus is for you and it's for me to bring life to you and to me. But it will expose you and me also. It will be unsettling at times. You know, darkness is found both within and without each of us. It, it's not hard to recognize the darkness that's loose in the world, is it? Uh, racist chants at football matches. In, invading nations. Deep fake videos increasingly proliferating. Sexual abuse, we hear these things all the time. We live in a land of darkness. But Isaiah says in chapter nine, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned, an irresistible light, a light which cannot be overcome. 
exposing and overcoming darkness. But the words of Jesus convict us too. Darkness is also within all of us, prone to think and to act and to react in ways which is just not pure. He has come to shine into our darkness for the sake of life, for the sake of life, not to crush but to liberate. And the darkness will not overcome his life. So over these weeks, even as his words challenge and they unsettle and they disrupt, hear, listen, receive them. He wants to bring to us life. He wants to renew, restore, and make us entirely his own. So John says that Jesus is the eternal word. He is the life-bringing light. And also, John says that Jesus is glory. He's glory. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, the staggering claim in the opening introduction of John is that the eternal creative word entered our world and God became man and dwelt among us. Just need to let that simmer for a bit. You can become overly familiar with these things, maybe. God became man and dwelt among us. And some people bumped into him and they were bumping into God who came among us. You know, the Greek word for dwelt among us is skenu. I think that's how you pronounce it. But that literally means pitched his tent. The word pitched his tent among us and we have seen his glory. And this phrase is carefully chosen by John because he's activating imagery of the tabernacle in the history of Israel. Okay? The tabernacle sometimes called the tent of meeting, was the very dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. It was there that the glory of God would descend in the form of a fiery cloud. God's glory hidden in the cloud. And Moses and Joshua would often go to the tabernacle to meet with God and the cloud would descend upon the tent and all of the Israelites would stand outside their tents to look upon this glory, Shekinah glory cloud as it descended upon the tabernacle. God with his people. God in the camp. God pitching his tent. His glory visible, moving with the people and leading them on. Amazing. But here John is saying that Jesus of Nazareth is God pitching his tent among his people. In Jesus we see God's glory tent. Jesus is the active presence of God among his people. He is now the meeting place with God. In him, the glory of God was on display just as it was in the tabernacle, only greater. John's witnesses, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this was not a mystical experience. It wasn't that John was in the corner just you know, meditating. No, this was a concrete thing. We could see him and touch him and eat his fish. They saw his glory. And John wants to tell us exactly what they did see. So what did they see? What was the nature of his glory? 
Well, of course, we'll find out as we read through the passages of the gospel, which bear witness to Jesus' glory. But in this introduction, even now, John wants to tell us what to expect. His glory will be like that revealed to Moses, but surpassing it. Now, try and stay with me here, because this is another allusion to the Old Testament scriptures, which John is wanting to make known to us so that we can see how Christ is the fulfillment of all scripture. John says, For from his fullness we all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now remember, God is, God is writing to people familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. So he's activating in their mind something about the history of Israel. He's activating in their mind the story of Moses going up to the mountain to meet with God. And you can read about it in Exodus, verses, chapters 32 to 34. Let me tell you the story, okay? So Moses has just been on the mountain with God. He's led the people of God out of captivity in Egypt, through the waters, and into the desert. And Moses has gone up to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And he's receiving the stone tablets where the commandments of God have been written. But while Moses has been away, the people have been getting a bit distracted, a bit disgruntled, a bit impatient. Where is Moses? Where is he? So they want to create for themselves a God that they can see. Much easier than a God they can't see. And so they take off their jewelry and they throw it to Aaron to create a golden calf. And then they worship this calf as if the golden calf had led them out of captivity. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, he sees what's gone on and he throws down the tablets of stone, which I imagine were quite heavy. So probably he didn't throw them very far, but crash. And what, is that the end of the covenant? I mean, that's the tablets gone. And Moses then seeks God for his people. And Ask God not to cut them off. In fact, Moses says, oh, I want to share their fate, whatever their fate may be, interceding for the people. And God forgives them. And God promises to be faithful. But there will still be judgment. There's still judgment in that whole scene. But God's judgment is outweighed by his mercy, and his justice is in service of his mercy. He forgives his unfaithful people. And then Moses asks after this to see God's glory, not just hidden behind a cloud like what happens at the tabernacle, but to see the glory of God in all its fullness. And that's a bold claim because there's only so much of the glory of God you can take. Man cannot see God's face and live. But God responds to Moses' request by saying, all of my goodness will pass by you on the mountain. God's glory attached to his manifest goodness. And so God takes Moses and he hides him in the cleft of the mountain and covers his eyes with his hand. And Moses is there between two pieces of rock. And then this is what happens. It's described in Exodus 34 from verse 5. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood 
with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The glory of God passed by Moses in the cleft of the rock. And it was an audible glory. It was for hearing more than for seeing. He caught a glimpse, but he heard the name of God being proclaimed. Moses cannot see who God is, but he can hear. He is a merciful and gracious God, abounding in steadfast love, keeping his promises, showing love for thousands of generations, which is supposed to make us think it just goes on and on and on. But not tolerating the destructive power of sin over his beloved, not tolerating darkness, it must be overcome. But his justice is in the context of his mercy which is why thousands of generations have spoken about his love and kindness and three or four generations of his judgment. That is his glory. That's what Moses heard. And what Moses heard, John and the other disciples had now seen. No one has ever seen God, John says. Moses could not. But John continues, God, the one and only who's at the Father's side, has made him known. What Moses could only hear, Christ Jesus had come to make visible. Veiled in flesh, Jesus, the eternal word. Veiled in flesh, Jesus, the life-giving light. Jesus, the glory of God made visible. Jesus, God with us. Jesus, God made known. Jesus, full of grace and truth. He has an abundant fullness from which we can all receive grace upon grace. You know, later in the Gospel of John, Jesus will tell Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus has come to make God fully known. And what do we see? In Jesus we see God's refusal to give up on humanity. Whatever our circumstantial state Because Jesus is grace. Jesus is grace. And the great paradox of the gospel is that the moment of glory that Jesus' life is building up to is he's being lifted up not on a throne, but on a cross. That's what he calls his glorification. As if behind a cloud... The glory of God was hidden to the onlookers of Jesus' crucifixion. The cross of Christ appeared to most people to be the ultimate humiliation, defeat, and shame. In fact, to all, his disciples all fled. And yet it was at the cross that God's glory was revealed as his character and goodness were on display there. There we see that Christ is the one Moses had heard of on the mountain. 
Christ is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He makes known the glory of God. He's the one who keeps his faithful covenant on both our heart behalf and on God's behalf. God with us. And it was on the third day when Jesus would rise in glory, proclaiming peace and forgiveness and new creation that the disciples' eyes would be open to realize the cross, the moment of God's glory revealed to the world, Christ offered up for us. Who is Jesus? According to John, Jesus is the creative word from the beginning. Jesus is the source of our life as the light of the world. Jesus is the embodiment of the glory of God made accessible to us. And Jesus is God's grace to all. Who do you say he is? Who is he to you? Who is he? There's no sitting on the fence. People come along to church for so many different reasons. Some come because it's good to be part of a community. And I want to say, this community is for you. You're so welcome. Keep coming. Some come because they like the music, and that's good too. There's peace to be found in listening to the music, and you're so welcome, and that's good. But who do you say Jesus is? There's no fence sitting on this. John says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How? Not by your intellect, not by your decision, not by a process you went through or a prayer you prayed, but by the will of God. As the word of God comes, that imperishable seed that we heard read about in 1 Peter, and it brings us to life, born from above. As the word of God comes, the fulfillment of all the promises of Scripture is found in Jesus. Over these coming weeks, we're going to look again and again at who this Jesus is. Throughout this series, you're going to hear of him. But even now, you can say, my Lord and my God. And as you do, know you are a child of God. Because that is the cry of God's children. To say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. He is word and light and glory and grace and he is for you. Have him. Have him again. And keep having him. He's given. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, I'm too conscious that my words are so inadequate to the power and the beauty and the majesty of your word. Your word, Lord, is like a double-edged sword, divides bone and marrow. Your word, Lord, cuts us to the quick, and sometimes it's deeply uncomfortable, but it's always for the sake of our life and flourishing, to do us good. Because, Lord, I thank you that your glory is found in doing us good. And so your glory is made manifest when all of your goodness passes by. And I thank you that we have seen your goodness at the cross of Christ. God poured out for us. 
And Father, I thank you that your son has risen. And I thank you that he's alive. And I thank you that Jesus, I am yours and you are mine. And I thank you that that is for everyone in this room to know, to know for sure. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and confirm and convict and seal everything that you would have do. I pray that each and every heart here would know I am a child of God by the will of God in the gift of his son. And we ask this in Jesus' precious, glorious, wonderful name. Amen. Amen.